Well, good morning. Uh, grateful to, to see each of you here this morning um, and just uh, thankful for uh, our worship team and just the work that they do to put together a, a real heart that exudes just a desire for all of us to draw close to Jesus. Uh, as we, we engage, I'd invite you to open your Bibles. If you have your Bible with you, that'd be fantastic. If not, uh, some of the passage will be up on the screen. We also have those scripture journals that are still out front if you'd like to grab one that has the scripture in it as well. But we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 9. And uh, it's a critical juncture in our journey through the book of Nehemiah. And, and I want to start off by, by asking you one question that I'll revisit again and again through the context of the sermon. And, and the question really is, um, what do you think you have to do for God to act on your behalf? Let me ask it again. What do you think you need to do for God to act on your behalf? And the reason why that question is so fundamental is because whether we say it out loud or there's just things within our hearts, there is an aspect of some sense that we have this growing notion inside of our hearts that there are things that we need to do for God to do something for us or on our behalf? It's a challenging question because I think as we look back in the backlog of our lives, what we would end up forcing ourselves to think about is usually those places where we feel like we've done the right things and God hasn't acted, <laughs> right? So we've, we've, we've prayed the, the prayers, we've gone to church, we've done the Christian, religious, faithful thing, and yet the desired outcome didn't happen. We prayed for loved ones who were sick. We've longed for people to come to faith in Christ, and it has yet to happen. We've wondered and we thought and we were so convinced of what the will of God might be that we wonder why it seems as though he's not acting. That's the fundamental question, I think, of Nehemiah chapter 9, because I think it's going to shift, um, not to be overdramatic, which preachers tend to do sometimes, uh, but that um, we, we do have this, this sense that somehow in some way uh, God is just not acting. And when I talk about a paradigm shift, I really do think that Nehemiah 9 changes the conversation. So you saw great pictures. I'm thankful for, for Mark and Laura this morning as they were able to uh, tell us a bit about Guatemala. And, and it was a construction project, so we were building this house. But here's the interesting part of Nehemiah, uh, the whole book, and, and even our title that Jared referred to last week as well, is we're talking about built to last. And, and yet, what we've always been saying is that the, the purpose was not the wall. The wall was the avenue in which God was building human hearts. Daniel, our leader in Guatemala, would tell us every time we got on the bus, the house is just an excuse. <laughs> And the excuse was the opportunity to share the gospel. Like, that's what we were really focused on on a regular basis. But here's what Jared and I have yet to do. If you're going to build something, you need material, right? I mean, you got to have something that you're building with. And if we're talking about building to last and God building human hearts, the inevitable question is, what's the material? What needs to be present in those things being built Nehemiah chapter 9 and this 
paradigm-shifting, kind of life-altering perspective that we'll have to revisit again and again through the course of our entire life, at least has two things that God puts before us in this chapter. The material that God uses to build human hearts are at least a growing, accurate view of God and a growing, accurate view of ourselves. There's a sense in which as God is generating and, and growing and building a, a people for himself, a people of his own possession, a, a longing and a desire for, for those who are followers of Jesus Christ to, to be that which represent and, and communicate and, and produce and, and, and show the, the fruits of the Spirit in a world that's lost and dying, there's a consistent revisiting of the reality of a growing accuracy of who God is and a growing accuracy of who we are. Remember when we started this series, we, we walked through four different things that were going to be critical themes that would show up. One is that you, know, you can never keep suffering at arm's length. Uh, the one that we're really focused on today is that God elicits change through our brokenness and the brokenness of others. There's a sense in which what, what we deeply desire this morning is that there's a level of awareness, a clarity, if you will, that we would see more honestly and more authentically the reality of what God is doing and the reality of what we need him to do. So we're going to jump in in Nehemiah chapter 9. It's a, it's a big chapter, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's a, a few specific pockets that I think are worth camping out on. Now let me encourage you, though, as in your own study this week, read Nehemiah chapter 9. We can commit to that. And then reread Nehemiah chapter 9. And then reread it again. There's aspects of what the Lord does as we continue to just soak in the truth of his word that I think as this is a, a paradigm-shifting passage of scripture, I think it's going to move us into a place, a critical place, of ultimately, I think the outcome is rest in the perfect providence of God. I mean, I really do believe that that's where he's leading the people of God in Nehemiah 9, but I also think it's where he's leading us. I'm going to start in chapter 9 and start in verse 5. So he's talking about, and Jared did a great job last week, this sort of revival of God's word in the midst of the people, and they heard God's word, and all they could do when they realized they came across a passage of scripture about celebrating the Feast of Booze, and they're like, oh, we should do that. And they jumped in and they did it, right? They were just like, I'm, I'm in, I, I see God's word, I hear it, and all I want to do is respond to those things. And so they just finished celebrating as a people for the first time in a long time, celebrating a, a festival of, of God's provision in the desert and the work that he had done through the 40 years of wandering. Like it, was, it was a great monumental occasion in the context of their lives where they're like, man, this is, this is big. And then what comes next is an accurate view of their own need. So here's what happens in verse 5. We're going to go verse 5 through verse 8. Here's what he tells them. Stand up and bless your God from everlasting to everlasting. 
Awesome. What a great call. Like, let's stand up and let's just communicate and blast God. Let's hallow his name. Let's talk about how awesome he is. But look, it's in contrast to something. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. I want to sit here for a minute. If I had the whole time, I would, I would love to spend like a month on this verse. That's how weird I am. But there, there's this sense in which here's what he's calling the people of God to. Once a recognition of the word of God back into the people of God and they're responding to obedience, here's the contrast that he sets up before the people of God. God's name is worthy to be honored above and beyond any blessing you think you're going to get. That we're serving and we're worshiping God for God. Not because there's some level of, okay, if I do these things, then I will receive the desires of what I want, and I can go to this benevolent Santa Claus and ask him for things as long as I bless his name. This is like the antithesis of transactional relationship. What Nehemiah is encouraging the people is stand up, bless the name of God, because he's God. Not because you're going to get anything from him or because he's going to do what you want him to do. There's a sense in which blessing and praise aren't the reasons why they're a response to the goodness of God. That is the start of the shift. Seeing God for God versus seeing God for what he can do for me changes things. Let me be fair. Begins to change things. Let me be fair. Can potentially change things as these things sit in our hearts. So here, here we go. Stand up. Bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and earth and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Verse 7, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, made him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Gergesite. And you have kept your promises, for you are righteous. One fundamental question. Honestly, it probably seems overly simplistic. Who did the work in all of this stuff? Nehemiah 9, verses 5 through 8 give a history uh, and a beginning history of kind of the work of God and the, the nation and, and God's people. There's a sense in which you get all of these things. And often, even in the book of Hebrews, we talk about how Abraham was had faith and it was credited to him in righteousness. So there was a response of Abraham. But often we elevate the response of the individual over the incredible work of God. Every verb in this passage is being done by God. Every action, every work, every pursuit, every creative ability, all of these things he tells us that, that 
that he was the one that not only created the heavens and the heavens and the heavens and the her, the earth and all that is in it and everything that's in the sea, like God is this author and creator of all things and that you are the Lord. And then, then what happened? Well, you're the God who chose Abram. Okay, so God, you're doing the work. And you're the one that gave him the name Abraham. And you're the one that found his heart faithful and made with him a covenant to give him offspring to all of these people, and you kept your promises. Why? Because you're righteous. You see how this revisits and reroutes us all back into the character and the nature of God. The essential element is as Nehemiah's developing steam, and, and like Jared said last week, like they're they're gonna spend half a day, like six hours standing and listening and longing for more of God's word. They already heard Ezra teach and all of these Levites went out and started to make sure that the people of God understand the word of God. And so there's this mobilization. And as the word of God is disseminated amongst the people of God, you know what happens? They, they grow in their hunger for the word of God. The more we're exposed to it, the more we learn from it, the more we want it. And so Nehemiah 9 shows up and they're committing to communicate these things and they're realizing the significance of God's work and that God is righteous. That means is that everything he does is based on the perfection of his character. There is not some sort of guessing act in those world stage. There's not some sort of adaptation of God saying, well, I guess I'll do this because this happened. Every action of God is born out of his character, and his character is righteous. So God's name is elevated above the blessings and praise. God pursues and guarantees his promises with himself. He's continuing to to draw people to the the reality and the substance of who he is. Because the people of God who minimize the substance of who God is find themselves disappointed in the God that they've manufactured because he's not acting the way they want him to. (laughs) I think that's where the basis of most of my disappointment with God is, is that the God that I've made in my own image isn't doing what I want. That's not the God of the scriptures. The God of the scriptures is abundantly clear that he's He's working and moving and and doing things that are are all from the standpoint of his character. So knowing his character, you can begin to see his fingerprint in all the things that are being done. From the goodness to the brokenness to the challenges to, to God using sin sinlessly. All of these things, God is not adjusting. God is working. And he's working through the brokenness of the human world and the brokenness of my own human heart to begin to instrument change in my life and the life of those who are faithful to him, those who seek his face and long for his character. Just recently, unbeknownst, well, not unbeknownst, but I should say by the generosity of some in the men's group, I'd love to say that it's generosity, but I wonder if they really want me to suffer. Here's the story. So I I have a big mouth, FYI. I know that's a shock to you. I'm usually pretty tempered and calm and Life as a whole, uh, that's a lie. Uh, so, but in the context of those things, I was talking to a guy and I was like, man, you know, before I'm 50, I'd like to run a marathon. And they're like, uh, and I, so I kept thinking about that. And then sure enough, on Facebook feeds, like they listen to you. You know what I mean? Like all of a sudden you get all of these different races that are showing up on Facebook. And I, I'm sure they're paying attention to everything that I'm saying. Jesus loves you. Maybe that'll show up on Facebook, right? Uh, 
But in the context of all those things, I saw this thing. It said, Iron Man Waco. And I'm like, I could do that. It's stupid. Like the stupidest thing that I've ever said in my life. And so a couple of the guys in the men's group decided, well, if you're going to speak it into existence, we'll make sure that it happens. And so I got, I got subsidized, if that's what you want to call it, sponsored maybe, to, to do this thing in October. So now all of a sudden, right, the training begins. And it's insidious because I, I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm trying to talk to people who've done all of these things before and learn. And essentially, as my wife would tell me, your goal is to just not die, right? Just don't die. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to not die. But I do tell her that if I do die, you can have the elk head that's hanging in my house. And she says, okay, that's great, but I'm going to sell it to Cabela's if I do. Uh, fair enough. Pay for our kids' college education. Whatever works. I'm not here. I'm with the Lord. But so anyway, in the process of those things, they have all these training apps, and they have these things that are fitness trackers. And so sometimes I get I get focused on, you know, how many miles should I run this week? How many miles should I bike? Uh, you know, my, my fitness tracker also does swimming. So how many yards should I be swimming? And I'm thinking about tracking all of those things to make sure that I'm putting in the necessary work to, to ho- hopefully co- complete this idiotic race that I should have never signed up for. But in the process of those things, I'm, I'm tracking my fitness. Let me suggest to you this morning that Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 9 through 15, is similar. It's not a fitness tracker, but it's a tracker of the work of God in the midst of his people because we are forgetful. We need to be reminded that is the question I ask at the beginning of the sermon, what do you feel like you need to do to get God to work on your behalf? The antidote to that is realizing and looking back, tracking what he's already done. Like so often we forget about the substance of the amazing work of God and and we need these consistent perpetual reminders. That's why we talk about redemptive history and we look back all the way through Genesis and and all the way through all the prophets, the, the major and the minor, all of these things where God was working on behalf of his people and every time unequivocally, it's God doing the work and the people needing the work. It's not about us doing the work and eliciting God to work on our behalf. God's already working. And in the process of him working, he's using all of the circumstances around us to to fundamentally draw us to himself. The building materials of building what lasts is an accurate view of God and an accurate view of ourselves. The accurate view of ourselves are we are in desperate need of an accurate view of God. Verse 9. Look at this. And you saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as the stone into the mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. 
you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and possess the land and you uh, that you had sworn to give them. As he unfolds the reality of the actions in the work of God, you cannot miss the theme of what Nehemiah is reinserting into the people of God that had been lost. Every time the people of God decide to try and do the work of God without God, fails. Every time. Every time. Now, is that just true for those in the book of Nehemiah? I would say no. Every time you and I attempt to manage life on God's terms, but without God's assistance, thinking that we've figured it out or we've lived this life long enough or we've served God long enough that we've got this one, we can figure it out. We have an inaccurate view of our daily dependent need for Christ. You and I are unable to functionally operate in a world that glorifies God without an accurate assessment that we need God daily. I can't love my wife and family because I think loving him is a good idea. I 100% think it's a good idea. But the motive and the strength and the ability to do those things comes from the fact that I need God to lead me in those places. It's unnatural to look at the book of Philippians and to say to myself, okay, I'm going to consider others better than myself. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. right? I'll put that on a bumper sticker on the back of my truck. But I can't do it. I cannot do it with my own strength and my own effort outside of a daily need for God to build my heart in a way that reflects his good character. I need to look back and I need to realize the significance of what God has done on my behalf. I don't stand in the pulpit this morning as someone who is unendingly faithful and because of that reason, God has allowed me a position to preach. That's not how it works. God has done a mighty work in a person that was born into a non-Christian home that had a lot of things assaulting him in a lot of different ways. And it was God in a recognition of my dependence upon him that ultimately just allows you and I to be a vessel for his glory, not for our own attention. How frequently have we seen over the last decade ministries that have train-wrecked because it was about the pastor. I have a call and a commission for you this morning. If this ministry ever comes to be about me or Jared, you need to tell us, because that's a dangerous road to walk along. This ministry is about the one chief shepherd who rules this church, and that's Christ alone. We have no right sharing that office with him. He is better at it than we will ever be, and he's the one that's commissioning us to do the things that he's called us to do for his glory. We're in a popularity contest. It's doomed for disaster. So 
as he walks through all of these pieces and, and reminds the people of God of the amazing work that he's done and that he has done all of these things, why does he tell them, here's all the things that I've done? I mean, what's the real reason for that? Because they need to know that the God who has done all of those things is the only one that we can trust to do the things in the future. We don't just get stuck in the past of, oh, God was great back then. The purpose for all of this reminding of the people of God is to say, that's the same God. That's the one that's going to be moving you forward. If he, he parts the Red Sea, it's because he's doing a work to bring freedom and liberation to your life where you would worship him alone. That's why I think he starts off this entire section in verse 6. You are the Lord. You are the Lord. You alone. I think sometimes we have a lot of different lords that we serve. The Lord of our own hearts, the Lord of our own appetites, the Lord of our own agendas and desires, the Lord of the world. And yet again, God is the only one that communicates to us the significance of who he is and what he does, and he's the only one working. I think a section of this text that's so critical is you see all of the yous that God has done is let's just look for one moment about what God does. Here are the verbs that it uses of God. God saw, God heard, God performed, God made a name for himself, God gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes, God gave them bread, practical needs, brought water for their thirst, told them to possess the land that you had given them, let me make an observation for us that I think would be critical in helping us understand the paradigm shift. God is always aware, always present, always acting in everything, everywhere. There is not a moment in your life where God is unaware of your needs. Okay, thanks, Pastor, that's great. There's not a moment in your life where God is not unaware of your needs and able to meet them for his glory. There is not a second of struggle, fear, doubt, and even sin that stops the work of God from being the work of God for his glory. God is always at work everywhere he sees everything every time with full and absolute perfect righteous clarity and so when we think about god what do i need to do to get you to act on my behalf the paradigm shifting reality is he's already working on your behalf it's just that your destination and desire is different than his his is towards him not an earthly object or earthly goal that will somehow only provide temporary satisfaction. Every suffering, every struggle, every sin, every issue that we face, every aspect of brokenness that we encounter in our lives or the lives of others is God at work in ways to draw us to himself so that what we find, what we long for, what we desire most of all is more of him. You are the Lord alone. There are no others that can satisfy the way that you do. God sees 
everything you're thinking right now. Every prayer you've prayed has been heard. Everything you've said has been listened to. And God has always been working. So what's the commission? Join him in the work that he's doing. Be a part of what God's doing in your life and the life of others. That he is the one that ultimately is the source for all of these things. God sees, he hears, he performs. He's making a name for himself. His name is worthy above to be exalted above all blessing and praise. It's not about getting things from God. Let me, let me shift that. That's not fair. The greatest gift that you will ever receive from God is himself. Often, we tend to be that young kid who gets a Christmas present and plays with the box. And what God is reminding of of here is the greatest gift that we could ever receive is himself. Through faith in Jesus Christ, God is authoring and providing and pursuing us to the point where the relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is drawing us into deep and abiding intimacy with Him. You faced loneliness and so have I. We have an advocate, Jesus, with the Father who's pleading the will of God on our behalf. We're not alone, even though we feel it. Because feelings are real, they're just not reliable. They don't give us an accurate understanding of truth. And so what do we need? We need to go back to the Word of God and generate, see the hunger that the Holy Spirit's generating us for more of the work in the Word of God. Because God is always aware of everything, all the time, no matter what's going on. You are seen and you are loved. Look with me as I conclude verses 16 and 17. Here's the key component of the paradigm shift. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commands. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. So, man, this should arrest us and, and, and push us so far down in our seats that we're, we're overwhelmed by the reality of what God has just said here. That sin does not stop God from working. That even in the midst of the most traumatic horrible decisions that you and I have made through the course of our lives. You have a God that is aware of everything, and yet, look what he says, stands ready to forgive. Why? Because of his character. He's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. As you and I find ourselves realizing and wrestling with the reality of what it means to place our faith and trust and confidence in Jesus Christ and the work that he's done and doing in our lives. I need us to be reminded that we serve a God who is perpetually ready to forgive. Because you know who he is, let me introduce you to him. 
He's gracious and merciful. He's abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, and he did not and will not abandon his people. Because that washes over us. It doesn't give us a license to sin. It puts sin in its proper place. It's egregious decision against a holy God. It's disobedience to his commandments, and it's worthy of punishment. But it's also worthy of confession. And when we confess, we come to this realization that the God that we confess to is ready to forgive. You do not have to prove the sincerity of your confession because God already knows it. (laughs) You don't have to somehow manufacture or elicit emotions or excuses as to why you and I have sinned. I've done it a hundred times. God, I, I said what I said, but do you know how bad those people are? Do you know what they said to me? And, and I've said those things to the Lord. And yet in the process of that inept confession, there's still this realization of how deeply I need the truth of the gospel to resonate inside my heart. And so I realize that even in imperfect confessions and even times where I'm uncertain about even what to confess, I serve, we serve a God who is ready to forgive because he's gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger. This whole chapter shifts the paradigm of allowing us to be open with the reality of what's actually going on in our lives because God doesn't work in pretenses. You can't fake him out as good as you think you are at it, as good as I think I am at it. If he's always aware, and he's always seeing, and he's always at work everywhere at all times, that's comforting when I'm struggling. It's very scary when I'm sinning. Right? So there's the place. That same God is at work, aware of those things, and drawing me to the very place that he wants me to be which is an intimate relationship with him that he has pursued and that he has provided for us. Verses 16 and 17, I think, tell us it's a gift to see our own sin clearly because we have a God who's ready to forgive. There's a couple authors that I just wanted to quote here. Um, uh, Thomas Carville says this, for every 100 men who can stand adversity... There is only one who can stand prosperity. The reason I put that there is because I think often in the midst of the culture that we live and the comfort that surrounds us, we forget how deeply we need Jesus. That's why I think short-term missions is awesome. If you talk to any one of the team that went to Guatemala, my guess is that one of their applications was a reality of how grateful Aura and her family were to receive a very simple gift of a home that had three rooms made of cinder block, tin roof, little bit of landscaping, and it was the most miraculous and amazing thing to her. And we come back, and you know, I'm I'm wondering if I'm gonna eat McDonald's or BJ's for lunch. You know, and so there's just that place of wrestling with the reality that 
even though I'm surrounded by comfort, I so often forget how deeply, deeply I need Jesus and how deeply he's blessed my life. Uh, John Steinbeck says this, if you want to destroy a nation, give it too much. Make it greedy, miserable, and sick. <laughs> I was talking with one of the, the team in Guatemala and we were talking about spiritual warfare and how present it might be. And in, in, when I was in India and Myanmar, like it's, it's palpable. Like there's just some levels of, D demonic reality that exists that is very different from what I've experienced here. But in the midst of that conversation, I said, it doesn't mean that the devil's less present. It just means his tactics are different. Apathy and comfort are his tactics in our world. <laughs> uh, how easy it is to dismantle the work of God when we're focused on earthly things and not on the larger work of God. Leveraging everything that God has given us for his glory. Now, it's not wrong to enjoy the things that God has provided for us. It just needs to be a place where we're recognizing that God has provided it. He's the one that's doing the work. Let me finish with this. I want to end in verse 32 because this is how Nehemiah ends it. Now, therefore, our God, shamelessly corporate. I love the reality that so much he's been saying, God, this is you, this is you, this is you, this is you. And now he comes to the conclusion that this is our God. We, we understand who you are. We have realized our need. And, and now us corporately are making this confession, the confession not only of our sin, but the realization of who you are. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us and upon our kings and our princes and our priests and our prophets and our fathers and all our people since the time of the king of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us and you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. That's the shift. It is the honest shift of the paradigm when we ask ourselves, what is it that I can do to get God to work on my behalf? The challenge is in that paradigm is that we think we know what we need. <laughs> we, we think we're the best ones to decipher and decide what's best for our lives. And yet, if God is the author of our lives, doing the work that he's doing, then the best thing that we can have is to entrust our lives to the God who knows better than we ever would. And in the process of those things, we realize that what? He's great and awesome. It's like Nehemiah can't come up with enough adjectives to describe God. And yet, so often, the adjectives we use to describe God are silent, hasn't been around, not working, didn't listen, find ourselves disappointed. And yet, here's what, Here's what Nehemiah says, great, awesome, faithful, steadfast. Let not our hardship seem too small. And how many of us have said that prayer? Lord, I know that this seems simple to you, but it's a big deal to me. What does Nehemiah say? He's listened. God, you've been faithful. I've been wicked. I need you. And so what's the message of this paradigm shift? Turn to Jesus. I mean, as simple as it sounds. Right? There's a sense of what God is doing is marshalling us to value above all things the awesomeness of God, that we wouldn't put our needs above the reality of who God is. We would put our needs underneath his tender care. 
and we would allow the sovereign, providential, pursuing God of the universe to allow his love and his character to wash over us in such a way that all we would hunger for is more of God. Let's pray.